When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, Neil Gorsuch made his confirmation hearing debut as Donald Trump's prospective Supreme Court nominee. And he came to D.C. with a long and concerning history of putting his finger on the scales of justice in favor of entrenched monopolies of money and power. What's really at stake here is your money. And we're joined by law professor Zephyr Teachout to explain what you stand to lose if Gorsuch is perhaps confirmed. Meanwhile, Donald Trump has promised to boost the military budget, bringing a considerable amount of your tax dollars into a Pentagon that already hardly wants for cash. But with all this money sluicing through the system, it might surprise you to learn how little of it makes it down to the grunts who do all the hard work and whose lives are much more frequently on the line than Washington's dizzying array of defense contractors. We're going to take a look at the working class military with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist David Wood. Finally, we have a real cops and robbers caber to share with you today, but it's not something out of law and order. Unless, of course, there's a law and order special financial victims unit that we've not yet heard about. It involves insider trading, the biggest hedge fund in the world, and a guy whose idea of fine art is a dead shark in a formaldehyde tank. And you can read all about it in a new book called Black Edge, Insider Information, Dirty Money, and the Quest to Bring Down the Most Wanted Man on Wall Street. And lucky for us, author Sheila Kolhatkar is joining us to talk about it. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and David Wood. Here's what happened first. Hello, good morning, good evening, or wherever time it is and wherever you are. Welcome once again to another edition of So That Happened, uh, our weekly view of politics in the misanthropocene era. My name is Jason Lincolns. I am the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post. Uh, this week, we're not going to plop face down into the news cycle. I know that sometime between the recording of this podcast and you hearing it, there could be a new healthcare law passed, at least in the House. Uh, also, there have been a lot of crazy developments on the whole intelligence community versus Donald Trump front. Uh, we would normally talk about this, but we're going to actually try to take a breath, take a step back, go on a little bit of a walkabout on this show, and talk about some other issues from some other places. But we're going to do so gradually. Uh, Neil Gorsuch is uh, Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee. Uh, he has been having hearings all week. They've been occluded in the crazier news, but they have happened all the same. And uh, here to talk about Neil Gorsuch and his role in mitigating monopoly power, we have Zach Carter. Hi, everyone. And uh, on the phone from us from New York City, we have our friend Zephyr Teachout. Hey, everyone. Hi, Zephyr. Um, so, you know, I, I just quipped that he would have a role in mitigating uh, 
economic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good joke, that. right? That was that was, that was, that was ironic. Almost um, as good as the use of the word misanthropocene to describe our current era and time. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. Yeah, I didn't know if I was allowed to laugh, You're, but I did. We're all allowed to laugh, even if the tears are flowing. Are, fast. The tears are flowing at the same time. Yeah, fast right? behind them. Um, yeah, but this. I mean, this Gorsuch thing. The, the Gorsuch hearings are so important, and I'm actually glad you're taking, you know, you called it, what, a walkabout, because we uh, may be living with Neil Gorsuch for 40 years. You know, kids who are being born today are going to have their kids in high school when Neil Gorsuch is still deciding uh, how uh, what the relationship between money and politics and our lives is and, and monopoly power. And I, I know there's a lot of contemporary issues going on, but um, but the Gorsuch hearings really matter. I, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that I've come to believe that we all talk about the Supreme Court being a big issue. A lot of people, when they were in the midst of a presidential election and they can't parse the politics anymore, they think, well, Supreme Court justices. Um, this right. Supreme Court is going to have a lot to say about money and politics. They're going to have a lot to say about entrenched monopolies of political and economic power. And as you wrote in the Washington Post, I believe this week, uh, Gorsuch has consistently come down on the wrong side of these issues. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, Gorsuch teaches antitrust law, and he's a Scalia guy um, in a very clear way. And, um, you know, people fear normalizing Donald Trump. Well, I, I think we should also remember that we should never normalize uh, Justice Scalia. Um, yes, he was a justice of the Supreme. No, I'm serious. I agree. I'd say. <laughs> um, but, but I actually think there's a weird way in which that's happened, that people say, well, because he is like Scalia and, and because we've already had that, that sounds like that's OK. That's within the realm of acceptable. Republicans but, even refer to it as the Scalia seat, like you're supposed to have someone right. like Scalia that just fits into that slot. Right. And when Scalia slid into that slot, um, his decisions, like uh, his antitrust decisions, led to an incredible concentration in our economy. So if you're wondering why, as a worker, uh, you don't have a lot of options between different uh cable companies to work for because they've all merged. Well, Scalia is part of that. If you're wondering why, uh, as a citizen, there's so much um, uh, dark money and outside corporate money, Scalia is an essential part of that and, and was an essential architect of gradually dismantling um, the uh, political reforms we've had. So so if if we know nothing else, we already know this. People often talk about Gorsuch as if he's, he's a cipher and a mystery. We know he is a Scalia admirer and we know he's a Scalia follower. And uh, we can see that in his opinions in antitrust and in, in money and politics. But that alone should be an incredible cause for concern because when Scalia was um, nominated, we were not at a moment of um, democratic and economic crisis that we are now. So uh, as dangerous as he may have seemed, the, the danger is uh, a hundredfold now because, you know, there are democracies at stake. Just give us a good example. And you can use it to the framework of Gorsuch right. and, and what he said in the hearings, if you, if you, if you like, or his previous decisions, if you like. But yeah. just to sort of bring this a little bit uh, closer to ground level for people, we talk about antitrust. We talk about monopolies and monopoly power. Uh, what are some ways that this manifests itself in the lives of ordinary people? Right. Um, so uh, 
I want to just sort of st- step back for a second and then we'll talk about the manifestation. There's basically two theories of monopoly, um, uh, anti-monopoly law or antitrust law throughout our history in this country. The one theory, the, the Justice Brandeis theory that goes back to the founding of our country is that incredibly concentrated economic power threatens our political system um, and uh, – a thriving, innovative economy depends upon a small business economy, a decentralized power in the economic sphere. The other line of thought, which um, was birthed out of the Chicago uh, School of Economics, um, Robert Bork, not nominated but not confirmed, uh, was, a, was in some ways the key proponent of this, um, as, lo- as well as Justice Scalia and Gorsuch falls into this as well, who believes that um, th- they basically don't take that concern seriously at all and say that the, uh, the purpose and core of antitrust law is efficiency in the market and low consumer prices. And that means sh- low short-term consumer prices. So um, how, how does this affect you as a person? Well, um, you as a person have uh, now, compared to 20 years ago, a fraction of the choices you did when you're buying chicken at the market. You're buying from uh, you know, Tyson or Pilgrims, uh, um, just a handful of chicken companies really control that area. And then you as a person might have a cousin who works um, in, the, in the chicken industry and as a worker in that chicken industry, you um, there's often regional monopolies, so you only can sell to one of these companies and are really limited in your freedoms in uh, negotiating that contract. So both as somebody who's buying things at the store, you have limited choices, and somebody who's working in the workplace, you have limited choices. And one of the real effects of this is growing inequality, because when you have a handful of um, uh, big companies – one or many, or one or a few, dominating a certain industry, they can basically um, almost arbitrarily set the prices and set the rules. And what that does is it allows them to take a lot more of the chunk of the wealth that's created for themselves instead of distributing it throughout the economy. And you just have so fewer owners and managers to begin with when you have these big yes. conglomerates instead of several small businesses spread out where, where the ownership structures are a little more democratic. Absolutely. I mean, this is this is sort of mainstream political theory throughout most of history is, um, you know, no, uh, if you don't have a, a shopkeeper class, a, a middle class of of um, of owners, you actually can't have a democracy. You know that this. So, so there's a lot. There's a lot of different effects. Um, and they they all um, and, and they're. They're really major effects when you when you think about. I mean, just to take defense contract when we've gone from 107 to five in the last 20 years. Uh, not that uh, maybe that's on the top of everybody's mind, but it might be in D.C. Is the number of choices we have is limited, and that really shifts power in society. Yeah, I mean, this idea that there is a connection between political power and and the functioning of democracy and the concentration of economic power is something that's become much more mainstream in Washington, D.C. over the past year. So, I mean, the Center for American Progress, not exactly the most like left-wing organization in the country, closely affiliated with the Obamas and the Clintons, held, held a, a big event a couple of weeks ago about economic concentration and, and Neil, Neil Gorsuch. Um, th- these are not normal things over the last you know, decade or so that you would have seen sort of the centrist establishment wing of the Democratic Party focusing on. But in the hearing uh, on, on Wednesday, Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, Gorsuch was asked a, a series of questions where he responded by saying, well, I can't get into politics. That's politics. Politics is something different. Uh, it, there was a particularly interesting 
exchange with, she- with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who was asking him why it is that there are dark money groups spending $7 million to get Neil Gorsuch elected. And, and Gorsuch said, well, you know, you should ask them. I can't get into politics. And, and White House responded by saying, well, I can't ask them because we don't know who they are. Uh, it, was, it was great. But there was this constant back and forth about, about the idea that, that it was somehow – there was somehow this bright line that exists between the law and the constitution on one side and then politics, which is this venal, you know, petty thing on, on the other side. And it, it just struck me as, as, as an artificial distinction. You know, we were – we were, we were having this debate. Uh, you know, the, the idea – I think it's at one point White House just got fed up and said, you, you really think that the Supreme Court that decides Citizens United is not a political organization? And, and you know, Gorsuch sort of feigned you know, to be offended by this and, and praised the Supreme Court justices. But is, is there a problem, Zephyr, to, to, to think about the law as, as an apolitical instrument? Yeah, I think that – I actually think you described this really well. There's something surreal about the framework – um, that the Republicans and Gorsuch, but I gotta say, some of the press also has set up, like, if he's polite and seems to understand the law well and succeeds in not an- answering questions, that makes him a good Supreme Court justice. That sort of imagines uh, a world, uh, it imagines the Roberts world where Roberts says, I'm just gonna call balls and strikes. And this is Justice Roberts who actually made up a new constitutional doctrine to strike down the Voting Rights Act. Um, so and and uh, this did, luckily did come up. Some of the Democrats raised this in the hearing, and I actually I thought that you know both White House and others rightly pointed out that uh, after Roberts' confirmation, we got to pull away that 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 fake story that you're just calling balls and strikes. Um, we know um, and we know and have seen that the Supreme Court reshapes power in our country. Well, and, um, and I mean this this idea that justices can be these. Uh, you know, intellectually neutral sort of, sort of. You, you know, want to say monads? I want to say monads. I'm going to throw out some Leibniz yeah. there. They, they, they can be these intellectually neutral monads. Is just incorrect. I mean, that's not the that's not the way decision making works. I mean, it, it, it's not necessarily criticizing a justice to say that, but people approach the world with a certain perspective. They have ideas and beliefs, and the idea that they can rule on something without any beliefs is nonsensical. It's absolutely nonsensical. And actually, Justice Scalia, again, really illustrated that with a, there's a kind of fake neutrality around originalism. But Scalia's approach towards antitrust was also made up. Um, it came from not the history of antitrust laws, um, but came from beliefs about the way the world works and economic models and theories and abstractions from the Chicago School of Economics. And so, um, you know, the, there's – the this this fake uh, formal computer modeled um, you know algorithmic justice um, has never existed can't exist and I think that that White House was exactly right and actually did I thought a really terrific job an important job of saying these are the values of our country these really affect the way that we live and and we do have judicial supremacy in this country which means that the Supreme Court can overrule our courts our our, our Congress not all countries have that. Um, but what that means is that we need to make sure that our justices reflect our values. And especially after a, you know, Donald Trump presidency, a presidential campaign, not presidency, presidential campaign that was all about attacking, um, you know, the swamp of Washington and, um, right. and big, big money and Amazon and, um, to have the, the idea that the people who voted for Donald Trump want a, um, 
elite, deeply abstract, um, fairly uh, for, uh, you know allegedly formal, but but really incredibly conservative um, justice like Gorsuch is just nonsense. Well, you know, speaking speaking of those abstractions. Uh, Democrats and liberals talk about Citizens United, that decision, uh, and uh, they talk about it in terms that has been bad for our democracy. Its proponents say, hey, all Citizens United did was uh, preserve free speech rights. And I think that there's a way that that argument can be presented where it sounds good. And there are people out there, mostly in the media, who have firm belief that issues like Citizens United don't resonate in the Places where Trump voters come from, the middle of America. Is there do – do you hold that opinion? Do you feel like people don't believe that we have a money in politics problem? And if, if, if so, how, how can we draw a brighter line around the money in politics problem we have and the inequality that's felt out there? Yeah, I think one of the real tragedies, the many tragedies of the of the Trump election um, is that so many there, – there are different portions of Trump voters, but there certainly is a significant por- portion that just wanted to throw the bums out, that were sick of the corruption, that were sick of money in politics. And there's plenty of polling, but I can also tell you from anecdotal experience talking to Trump voters that the the big money problem in the Washington – uh, the Washington swamp, draining the swamp, um, was you know really part of the motivation. And now we're putting in a, a justice who looks like he's going to you know protect and enlarge the swamp. And as Nina Totenberg gild said yesterday, the swamp. On, he will gild the swamp. Gild, gild, right? Um, Nina Totenberg said yesterday, you know, actually, you know, despite his. Uh, awkward non-answers. He's kind of clear on Citizens United. Um, it seems that he supports it, and in fact, one of the things that's come out in the hearings is his reper- repeated reference to the privacy of donors is kind of disturbing uh, because that suggests, as did an, a concurrence, um, a Tenth Circuit concurrence that he did, that he might even have a, a more extreme view than Justice Scalia on money and politics issues. And it, it sort of reminds me of. Um, uh, today, actually, I'm teaching Buckley versus Vallejo to my my students, ah. and um, and every time I teach it, um, and and it's actually really important for a lively discussion. Um, the students start out saying, "I I don't like money in politics," and within about ten minutes, they've all switched to saying there should be unlimited money in politics. Um, because they're thinking really abstractly, and then they sh- and then they switch back, and we get into a more complex conversation. But when you think really abstractly, you know, if uh, uh, if it if if it includes words and it's political, it must be um, speech and absolutely protected. Um, then you end up with a sort of Scalia Gorsuch kind of axis. But the Buckley versus Vallejo and Citizens United were both cases decided by Supreme Courts with people who had no political experience, and I think it really shows. And I'm I'm really concerned that Gorsuch reflects this kind of cold blooded abstraction about uh, a world that doesn't exist instead of politics as it actually exists. Uh, well, that's pretty interesting. I think that the, this world that doesn't exist, that seems to be the kind of thing that Donald Trump enforced throughout his entire campaign. So, right. I mean, there's a, <laughs> it's, it's, it's somehow fitting. All right. Uh, Zephyr Teachout, thank you for joining us today. I, I'm sure that if Neil Gorsuch is confirmed, we'll have ample opportunities to have you back on the show. Well, well, uh, I hope it's not dependent on Gorsuch being confirmed. <laughs> it's that abs- creates <laughs> skewed incentives for me. 
<laughs> That's right. The very perverse incentives. Those are bad. Um, yeah, we'll we'll figure something out if he doesn't get confirmed. You can come on. And oh, talk okay, about, good. All right. Uh, the Bronx or something like that. <laughs> How great that is. All right. Uh, thank you, Zephyr. Uh, we will be right back. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we are back. Serving in the United States military is obviously a dangerous job. One of the reasons people do it is because it's also a way for ordinary people, people uh, who are living sort of in the margins, to uh, to have a better life, a shot at education, job opportunities. And if you ever listen to a soldier being interviewed on TV, maybe you pass by on the local news, you'll hear someone talking. They may be stateside. They may be deployed. You listen to them talk, you'll see they're connected to these ideas. They think a little bit bigger about the world because they've been in the military. President Donald Trump has promised to plus up military budgets to an extraordinary degree. An unprecedented amount of money is going to soon be flowing into Pentagon coffers if he gets his way. But how much of this money will actually flow down to the people I'm talking about and the people who do the actual work? As in all things, sometimes the plutocracy wins. Here to talk about this is Arthur Delaney. Hi. And for the first time on our show, Pulitzer Prize winner, reporter and author, David Wood, why have you never been on the show? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I think I've never been invited. Answer is we're terrible. But <laughs> we're going to hopefully change all that today. David, you have been working on a story that gets at the sort of inequities uh, in what's been proposed as far as boosting Pentagon budgets and the people who actually do most of the heavy lifting in the military. Um, is this something that uh, – is, is this a new situation, a, a new problem? Sadly not. So we're really talking about the working class military, which is a term I use fondly uh, to describe those people in the military who do the direct um, hands-on kind of work. So we're talking about – the trigger pullers, the wrench turners, the people that stand watch on ships, um, all those people who work really hard and often without a break. Um, and traditionally, they have gotten um, shorted in the defense budget. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But basically, it's very easy for uh, money to get siphoned off to big defense contractors and lobbyists because for a lot of reasons. Um, 
for, for one thing, big, big weapon systems like an aircraft carrier provide a lot of hometown jobs for politicians. So, uh, you know, in Congress, that's a that's a great thing. You know, <clears throat> we'll vote $13 billion to build an aircraft carrier, which we're doing now because it provides a lot of hometown jobs. And because there are a lot of lobbyists who are pushing for that kind of thing, and and so it goes. When it comes to buying boots, you know, there's no line item in the budget for boots. So it tends to get, you know, sort of unnoticed. And so traditionally, even the infantry, which, you know, they walk everywhere, right? Um, you know, they traditionally have not gotten I've been the told those boots. boots are often on the ground. They often are. Um, the boots aren't good? So – so even in uh, 2001, when these wars launched off, uh, a lot of guys were wearing Vietnam-era boots, which were – I mean, I have a pair. They were horrible. <laughs> they were really painful. I, and and you could go to REI and buy great boots, but you could – but they weren't in the defense budget. Why? Because it's such a small item, it gets overlooked. So Donald Trump talks about the military. We're going to have a great military. Politicians always praise the military and troops – but the new the pledge to heap additional funding on the defense department you're saying it doesn't trickle down to low level workers in the military and it never has Arthur it does trickle down but that's the whole point what you get is little drops and trickles oh, okay. and what a, <laughs> and what a, a lot of the people that i talk to um uh, Marines and soldiers and, and airmen in particular is that, you know, they don't get stuff that they need. So I was recently down at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, the big Marine Corps base. And what the Marines down there were telling me was, we can't get out to the rifle range because we need trucks to get there. But the trucks are broken down. What? Why are the trucks broken down? So I went to talk to the truck people and they're like, uh, we have three wreckers and they're all busted, so we can't we can't haul the trucks in for maintenance. I'm like, okay, this is nuts. We're paying 13 billion dollars for an aircraft carrier. Why can't you get your wreckers fixed? Well, you know, we don't have the money. We're out of spare parts. We we need some more mechanics. We don't have them, and so there's this whole sort of rolling effect of not quite having enough money. And again. You know, these are not people sitting in air-conditioned offices and and, and dreaming up great, uh, you know, military doctrine and stuff. These are the working men and women. And what makes this poignant is that Donald Trump campaigned, as far as I am concerned, on behalf of the working men and women of this country, which is great, right? Uh, but here are the working – Men and working men and women of the military, and once again, from what we can see of his the budgets that he's put out, uh, you know, the money is going for big ticket items once again. Another thing that shocked me about your story was that it's not just the small ticket items that working members of the military use every day; it's also their actual compensation that is surprisingly stingy. Right. So, um. So the military is broken down into, you know, divisions, brigades, uh, battalions, platoons, squads. So the, the squad is really the, the, the fight, the basic fighting unit. So 12 men and women or men or women. 
Uh, and the person in charge of a squad is a sergeant. And sergeant will, you know, a typical sergeant, and I hate to say typical because there's so much variation, but um, it may be making a base salary of $35,000 a year. Now, with allowances and other things, that may get up to around $50,000 a year. Wow. Which is okay, but as you were pointing out, that's the that's fifty grand is about the median household income in the yeah. United States, right? And this is a sergeant with married with two children, right? So, so that's the small amount of money, really, for for what is what you think is the really sacred job for what we're asking of them, yeah. You know, which is to risk your life, go into harm's way, and and do very very difficult, dirty, demanding stuff. Now, the thing is that you know. People in the military, by and large, aren't doing it for the money. You know, they're doing it for the ideal of service. Mm -hmm. They want to be serving their country. That's a noble calling. And they're proud of that. But they wouldn't mind getting a little more money. I'm sure they wouldn't mind things not breaking all the time. How does the how do these shortfalls affect? You're talking about what's going on at Camp Lejeune, but how do these uh, shortfalls affect uh, men and women in the armed forces when they're on deployment in harm's Okay, way? so here's here's a thing that a really insidious effect of this. Um, if you are a company commander in the 82nd Airborne, for example, um, you and your staff have to certify that every paratrooper in your command has been trained on a specific number of tasks. Well, if you go out to the rifle range and there's not enough training ammunition, you fall a little short. Now, you got a deployment coming up. You're supposed to certify all your guys are 100% trained on all those tasks which are written down and given to you and you have to check them off. But they're not, you know, there's like six guys who didn't have enough time to qualify on their weapon. What are you going to do? So you go to the battalion commander and he goes, are you guys checked out? And you go, well, sir, not quite. And he goes, we're just going to put that down as a yes. So, so, so these guys will this still very, get thrown out of a plane with their guns. Yeah, and they can still shoot. But the point is that that if there's a shortage of training ammunition and there is a huge shortage of, shortage of training ammunition throughout the military, things don't get done. Hmm. And there's a, this very insidious um, phenomenon where people have to say, OK, well, it's good enough. And that's really for an organization that has to be – Truth-telling and based on absolute honesty, that's a problem. You know, there shouldn't be the need for a K Street firm that's in Congress's ears about training ammunition or shoelaces or or rifle sights. Um, but it seems to me that the people who want those things are, are hopelessly outgunned by this massive infrastructure that's delivering big-ticket items to government contractors. Is there any way to level that playing field at all? I, you know, I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. But if you go – Jason, you should go with me sometime to like the Association of the U.S. Army's annual convention. Yeah. And they always have this gigantic display of all these weapon systems and, you know, there's all the Lockheed and Boeing and General Dynamics and all these big companies and they have these beautiful displays. And they used to have, but no more, beautiful, scantily clad women showing off the latest gizmo. <laughs> and it's such a consumer electronics show. Right, exactly. And it's really glitzy and, and it's terrific. But there's nobody there, you know, with a booth selling or promoting bootlaces or optical sites or, you know, that kind of thing that 
So that that's why, you know, there's this momentum going to towards the big ticket item. Now, now, does the honor associated with serving in the armed forces and the deference thereby paid to its leaders result in people not questioning this kind of thing? Is there is there too much deference? You know, it's complicated. So if you're a um, a member of Congress and you're sitting on the House Armed Services Committee, you got a lot of stuff to do, a lot of big decisions. And, and, and looking at the acquisition budget, which is what we're talking about here, um, you know, there's not a lot of time to delve into, you know, how many boots are we buying and is that enough? And let's get somebody up here to talk about that. It's just not enough time to do that. So what tends to happen in my experience is I've watched Congress over many, many years is, you know, they check off the big stuff. That's the important stuff. We got to have aircraft carriers. So check. Uh, you know, we'll have a hearing on aircraft carriers. We got to have uh, aircraft missiles. So we'll have a hearing on aircraft missiles, bring all the people in, talk about it, decide how much we want to uh, um, authorized for that, and that gets done. But by the time it gets down to stuff the working class military needs, it's no one's flying back to their district and saying, "I got these guys' boots." Right. So to confound this a little bit, the, the we spend uh, what like half a trillion dollars every year on military, but uh, the lion's share of that does already go to personnel. It's not just being siphoned off by. Uh, corporations and, and aircraft carriers. Right. People are very expensive. And I think it costs about a million dollars a year to, to uh, train and equip a an infantry soldier, for example. Um, so it's expensive. Um, but then again, look at the look at the wars we're fighting. They are manpower intensive, right? I mean, you know, we're not we don't have fleets of tanks uh, deployed in Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria. You know, it's it's people on the ground. It's the working class military. So in their view, and I think they have some reason to argue for this, they need, you know, they need stuff. Honor and and deference to leadership aside, I'm sure these guys, when they talk about this stuff, uh, they'll talk your face off about it, right? I imagine there's probably some... You know, okay, so I went down to Camp Lejeune. I've been there many, many times. I've spent years basically there and uh, talked to a bunch of Marines. And at first, you know, I'm saying like, what do you guys need out of the budget? And they were like, just sitting there. I said, well, come on. What, what do you guys really need? They're so, you know, they're not demanding a lot. And I say, okay, so what are your problems here that, that a little more money could solve or, or more people? Very gradually, they say, well, sir, um, you know, we've got these um, grenade launchers that we're supposed to train on, but when you shoot them, the sights fall off. Yeah. Um, I said, okay, that sounds like a problem. Uh, what else? Well, we can't get out to the rifle range because there's no trucks because those are broken down. So we have to walk, which is okay. We can walk. We're used to that. But it, it cuts down the time we have on the rifle range. That means with the time we have allotted, we can't get everybody qualified. So there's this, you know, rolling kind of effect. Well, <laughs> I, I, I wish that uh, I wish that we had an answer for how to solve this kind of problem. Seems I think complicated. That, yeah, but I think that, I think that more attention we can provi- more attention we can give to these these sort of inequities between where this big where this money in the budget's going and where it could be used uh, uh, is is important. And you know, people out there listening, you should talk to your representatives about this disparity and try to get the people who are helping to protect you. 
some help on your own. It's a good way of giving back to the people who are already sacrificing a lot for you. Amen. Uh, all right. Uh, David, thanks for being back on the show. We'll have you back on another three years. I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and Arthur, and Arthur uh, uh, yeah. thanks for being here. Look for Dave's story on the Huffington Post and just follow him wherever he goes. He's Wood Writer on Twitter. Uh, thanks again, Dave. And we will be right back. Hello, So That Happened listeners. I want to just take a moment to ask you to do a few small favors. First, if you like the show and want to help more people find it, go over to iTunes and just leave us a review. Every review we get bumps the show a little bit higher in the podcast charts. It does make a difference, and it's going to help us build this community. Second, are there issues you'd like us to address? People you think we should talk to. You should drop us an email at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. We really do appreciate your suggestions, and we often follow up on stories, and we just like hearing feedback and criticism. So we'd love to hear from you specifically, because you're the people that matter the most to us. Now, back to the show. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, joined as always by... Uh, Jason Lincolns. And we have a very special guest today. It's a woman named Sheila Kolhatkar. She's the author of a book called Black Edge, Inside Information, Dirty Money, and the Quest to Bring Down the Most Wanted Man on Wall Street. She writes for The New Yorker. And her book is really good. It's so a it's it's really I think it's the 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 most gripping read about financial stuff since uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin's Too Big to Fail. But unlike Too Big to Fail, I don't have any philosophical problems with it. Um, so it's it's just it's all good. Uh, Sheila, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Okay, so your book is about the fall of a giant hedge fund called SAC Capital. What what is this thing, and why did you write about it? Well, SAC Capital was one of the most financially successful, powerful hedge funds in the world. At its peak, it had over $15 billion in assets, which is, you know, makes it very, very large. And um, because it was so big and it did so much high volume trading in different stocks every day, all of the other firms on Wall Street, like big investment banks like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and other companies like that, they all had to kind of cater to SAC. They all desperately wanted to do business with this hedge fund and therefore wanted to please the hedge fund's owner, uh, who is a gentleman named Stephen A. Cohen, and um, also a very famous kind of iconic figure on Wall Street. He came from modest beginnings, um, grew up very middle class in Great Neck, Long Island, and wanted to become rich on Wall Street from an early age. And he launched this fund in 1992 and um, kind of rode the wave of the hedge fund industry, which had barely existed, you know, when he got started and kind of exploded into this huge, gigantic industry that has a lot of influence around the world. And um, he was uh, famous on Wall Street for being an incredibly talented trader. And he became, yeah. No, that's one of the things I, w I really wanted to ask about, because I, I feel like there's a lot of talk about hedge funds and hedge fund people get criticized. Donald Trump uh, made fun of hedge fund people. And you've been covering hedge funds for as long as anyone I can remember. What is it about these particular institutions that make them different uh, 
from other Wall Street money-making mechanisms that we're more familiar with? Well, they really started out uh, decades ago as a sort of boutique type of investment fund, basically an unregulated pool of money that catered to wealthy people. And the reason they're called hedge funds is because um, the idea was that you could park some of your money in one of these little privately managed pools uh, and the hedge fund manager would be buying stocks, so going long, and this person would also be shorting things, so betting against certain stocks. And that would mean that they were a little bit hedged. You weren't just sort of long the market, which is usually the case if you have money in a regular old mutual fund that owns shares of um, General Electric and Time Warner and whatever it is. And if the market goes up, you make money. If it goes down, you lose. A hedge fund was meant to be sort of more cleverly managed. So you would have uh, a slightly different return than just a straight up long the market kind of idiot <laughs> investment. So that was the idea. And um, the, and but they're they're riskier. You know, they, shorting stocks is is a high risk activity. So the, so the the understanding with financial regulators was that um, if hedge funds only took investments from rich people, people who could afford theoretically to lose the money, who were sophisticated and knew what they were doing, uh, in exchange for only taking that kind of money, the hedge funds would be lightly regulated. So they would be free to almost do whatever they wanted borrow a lot of money and make kind of aggressive bets in markets all over the world, shorting things, which is very risky. And they've largely been left to their own devices. And what's really remarkable about them is how successful they have been for the people managing them. Uh, They really quickly uh, emerged as the vehicle to amass an enormous fortune. Um, You know, if, if you were successful at this, you could become a billionaire in just a few years and, you know, if you compare that to working at a regular big firm like Goldman Sachs. Uh, you're stuck you know, being a millionaire can... in a few years. Well, that's it. You, <laughs> you would maybe you're the CEO of Goldman Sachs, you know, one of the most powerful people in the world, someone who speaks to the president on the phone. Uh, you might make $50 million a year. But if you're one of the biggest hedge fund managers, you would make a billion dollars in a good year or more. So so, so, the, so what went wrong at SAC yeah. Capital? I mean, you're, the, the, the fun thing about your book is that people don't just get rich by doing good. So, something goes dreadfully awry. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I was I became really interested in this story when it became clear sort of at the end of 2012, uh, the FBI went down to Florida and arrested a former SAC Capital trader named Matthew Martoma. And because I started my career working at a hedge fund, I had always sort of vaguely followed the industry. I covered it as a reporter. But once it became clear the government was gearing up to go after this particular fund, one of the most powerful hedge funds in the world, then it got really interesting to me. And um, the FBI decided at one point they were going to try and um, learn more about what was going on in the hedge fund world. It was a very opaque, enormous industry that was no, no one really knew what was going on. And they started investigating and using wiretaps and confidential informants, all the all the kind of investigative techniques they had used to investigate organized crime. Mm-hmm. And they discovered these sort of massive insider trading rings among different hedge funds uh, where you had traders and analysts at various funds kind of getting inside information from public companies, people who worked at publicly traded companies. And then these guys were sharing it with each other and they were making money. And um, the name. So you're going to tip about what's going to happen at whatever, say 
Dell, Time Warner, or, yeah. or GE, and then and then you trade the stock based on this information that the, that the market more broadly doesn't know about. That's right. So so what what's happened over the years is you know in fact when Steve Cohen started his fund there were relatively few hedge funds and it was fairly easy to make money. But as the hedge fund industry has grown and it is now estimated uh, to have three trillion dollars in assets in it. Um, you have so many people so aggressively competing with one another, trying to find good edge, which is this term for kind of a juicy piece of information you can make money with. So all of these guys, they've all gone to the best schools. They're the most aggressive. They're, you know, they do triathlons in their free time. They're super competitive, driven. They're all being motivated by these huge multi-million dollar bonuses. They are all trying to find good, actionable moneymaker ideas to trade in the market. And, um, you know, when you have, as one FBI agent reported in my book, you know, once one of these people starts to kind of cross the line and do things that are they're not supposed to be doing to get an extra boost, everyone else starts to feel as if they need to do that as well or they will be left behind. So sort of a race up, to the bottom. That's sort of what happened. And I don't want to suggest that all hedge funds engaged in this because there are thousands of hedge funds that do different things. But there was a certain sort of hedge fund that definitely got drawn into this, like funds that are doing kind of short-term bets on corporate events. Um, you know, you had a lot of hedge fund managers like Steve Cohen telling his employees, I want a surefire money-making idea and I want to know when we're going to make the money, you know. So bring me an idea. And um, it's a tough thing to do for gambling. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's it's a it's a it's an educated form of gambling. But I thought it was really interesting that you had so there's so one of the sort of plots of uh, that I cover in the book is this story about Dell. Uh, Dell uh, was and continues to be, I'm sure, uh, 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 was a vo- it was a very volatile stock. So it would move up and down wildly based on small crumbs of news because you had so many hedge fund people tracking it and trying to make money off of it. So you have every quarter uh, uh, publicly traded companies have to make earnings announcements. So that's when they tell the market, okay, this is how we did this quarter. This is how much money we made. These were our expenses. This is what we expect in the future. It's actually kind of boring. But all investors in that company pay attention to these earnings releases because they they give you guidance about how the company's doing and its general financial health. And you have all the mutual fund managers and all the hedge fund managers and all the bankers and everyone listening to these calls, and the stock will move based on what news comes out. So what often happens is you have these really aggressive analysts and traders at these hedge funds trying to kind of figure out what the earnings are going to be ahead of time so they can make a bet. And um, not only do they have to figure out what the earnings are going to be, and then make a bet. But they have to kind of understand what the market is expecting their earnings to be as well, because if everyone kind of knows what's going to happen, then then the news is probably priced into the stock already. Right. It might not move. Yeah. But yeah. But so you have to kind of figure out what's going to happen and then what everyone else is expecting and then make set up a trade, a long trade, a short trade, whatever it is, and uh, try and make money. And you just have thousands of these sort of Ivy League educated people spending all of their waking energy trying to figure out what Dell's earnings are going to be within a penny. And this is why we don't have people on Mars yet. (laughs) (laughs) I just think it's an interesting use of resources in our society that we have decided that this is one of the most highly compensated jobs in our economy is – Trying to figure out earnings ahead of time, and the it's incentives just, to, to to actually do insider trading are must be super high. I I wanted to ask this book like 
to me, it's a cat and mouse book. It's a cops and robbers book. And you talk about the FBI, you talk about the SEC, you talk about uh, Preparar at the Southern District of New York. Uh, basically, uh, I get a sense that they are very competent. They know how to make cases. They're meticulous. Uh, and they they plan out their strategies very 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 well. And obviously in the book, uh, you know, you have some fines being levied, some some sentences being handed out. But at the same time, I wonder if you could sort of ex- explain how outgunned are the cops on this beat compared to what they're up against. Well, that is something I thought about a lot because, of course, if you speak to folks on Wall Street, they feel that the government is too aggressive and uh, they have lots of complaints and they have a point. The government has subpoena power. They can put wiretaps on people. They are very powerful. However, if you walk into like the FBI's fraud unit in lower Manhattan, you know, it's a very ratty, you know, very unglamorous place where they're, you know, they're eating Kit Kats and goldfish and they're all working on these ancient computers. I mean, literally old Dell computers from 20 years ago. And then you walk into one of the uh, most successful hedge funds in the world and it is literally uh, a sleek, state-of-the-art, high-tech operation where they are – they have unlimited resources to spend. I mean, they uh, they will spend money on any sort of um, – little research uh, resource available that might give them even a tiny advantage over a competitor. They will pay to have their fiber optic cables laid in a particular place so that their trades can be executed faster. They will pay people to go and and monitor the parking lot in a a store to try and piece together what kind of business the store is doing. I mean, they they will do – I mean, it's just remarkable. And and money is sort of no object for many of these funds. They're so profitable. This is absolute madness. It's, <laughs> but it's a little crazy. So this is what's going on. We have a lot of brain power devoted to figuring out these tiny little things so they can trade huge volumes of shares and make money. Which ultimately doesn't help anybody really innovate or, or come up with, you know, any sort of creatively destructive new force that will that will reinvent our economy and make it better. Um, well, you know, your, your book isn't all super heavy stuff. There's some really funny, like just wildly funny moments in the book. Um, JP Morgan has the London whale. Uh, SAC Capital had the rotten shark. Uh, can you tell us about that? Uh, I, I presume you're speaking of um, Steve Cohen's uh, shark in formaldehyde. So, so um, that's right, Mr. Cohen. So, so it's. It, it, you sh- I should explain that hedge fund moguls uh, often get drawn into collecting art, and um, I think often what happens is there are these kind of nerdy guys, and they become incredibly wealthy, and then they. Um, you know, realize that maybe the world sees them in a particular way. They're kind of boring or they're just like rich guys. So they get into art collecting. It makes them much more cool and interesting and they have all this money to spend and the art world is very happy to kind of treat them like VIPs and tell them what artists to buy. And they're really into um, contemporary art. And Steve Cohen has uh, one of the most um, renowned private art collections in the world. It's estimated to be worth more than a billion dollars. And at one point he purchased a Damien Hirst sculpture for $8 million dollars. Um, and it was an it was a real shark, uh, I believe a great white shark suspended in formaldehyde in sort of a big cube. I believe it was a tiger shark. And I, we're, we're gonna we're, yeah, we're tiger gonna, shark. We're there you go. Fact check. Yeah. There. Okay. So <laughs> I I, I got to know my sharks, my sharks a little better. But it, it was it was it was kind of a joke in the art world because he was seeing himself as a shark, 
And I guess everyone thought he was trying to be ironic and self-referential with this. And um, but of course, there were news reports that the shark was degrading, and it had to um, all the all the fluid had to be replaced at one point, and it was a bit of an inside joke. But um, I I did think you know he's very strongly associated with this particular. I don't even want to call it a sculpture. It's like an installation almost. The, the, the piece is called yeah. The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living, which uh, – He also had – if I'm not mistaken, he also had the sculpture of a uh, – it was like a plastic cast of a sculptor's head yes. made out of the sculptor's own frozen blood and yes, he had indeed. to keep it refrigerated – he had to have a special sort of freezer system installed in his office, apparently, to keep it cold enough. But like you said, money's no object. Money can... is no object. Um, yes. <laughs> what would you say? Uh, and what would you say the political significance of this book you've written is in this in this age we're living in? With Donald Trump, he's promised a lot of deregulation. Uh, probably said a lot of things to make people like Stephen Cohen very happy. Well, of course, I think I, I wrote this story like kind of a pot boiler because I wanted it to be easy to read. But really, I was interested in the bigger picture and the bigger message. And I think um, I think one of the important things to remember is that a lot of the activity I write about in this book, this sort of flowering of crime that happened, uh, occurred towards the end of a long period of deregulation in Washington uh, and during George Bush's presidency. But I, although Clinton uh, – Previously was also, you know, on the same bandwagon to some extent. But um, during the Bush years, modernized those commodity futures. If I recall correctly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We yeah. don't need to. We don't need to regulate derivatives. Right. Why would we do that? <laughs> yeah. But so, so, but so, for many of the the Bush years, there was a um, gentleman running the SEC. The chair of the SEC was uh, a gentleman named Christopher Cox, a congressman who did great American. That the, yes. <laughs> <laughs> who believed that the market could regulate itself, who, who essentially felt that Wall Street could regulate itself, was actively discouraging SEC enforcement attorneys from issuing subpoenas, from launching investigations. I mean, the message was just like hands off. And during those years, we had some very crucial things happen. We had we had this huge spread of insider trading at hedge funds. But there was also the buildup of the subprime mortgage fraud bubble that blew up and uh, led to the financial crisis, which we are still paying for. I mean, which largely explains why we're in the political situation we're in. So many angry, economically disenfranchised people. And even Steve Bannon the other day tried to argue that his father lost money in the stock market crash. And therefore, this is why he is the way he is. I don't know if I completely (laughs) buy his story. But it caused widespread economic damage. It really exacerbated income inequality. Most Americans have not really recovered, um, you know, outside of, you know, certain groups of people who have done better than everyone else. And um, I think it's just really important to remember that deregulation when it comes to the financial market does not really work. They don't regulate themselves. The incentives are too great to cross the line. And, um, you know, now we're in a situation, again, it's a bit of a deja vu where you have a president saying, oh, I'm going to do a number on Dodd-Frank. So he wants to dismantle Dodd-Frank. He's installed all these Wall Street billionaires into key policy and regulatory positions. Uh, it's really unlikely that they're going to be stepping up enforcement, you know, of Wall Street crime. And I think people need to be reminded of what happens when when we enter these periods where everyone is looking the other way. Really bad things happen and we, we pay very dearly for them. 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting how much of it depends on enforcement. When you, when you talk about uh, about Chris Cox, I think during the the Bear Stearns, uh, you know, emergency rescue negotiations, he he was invited to participate by the other regulators, and he declined because he was at a birthday party. And now we have, uh, I think, Jay Clayton, the nominee from for Donald Trump, is literally the the lawyer who represented Goldman Sachs uh, for their bailout. So we're in great shape. Uh, <laughs> Sheila Kolakar, this is a terrific book. Uh, it was a real pleasure to have you on on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. And we'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young and J.M. Rieger. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. Many thanks to Nick for helping us out this week in our New York studio. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week we were joined by author and New Yorker writer Sheila Kolhatkar, law professor and author Zephyr Teachout, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and David Wood. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Please check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we miss you already. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.